This episode of Energy Sense is brought to you by IHS Markets Financial and Capital Markets Energy Advisory Group. Our team of experts provides the investment community with actionable insight and integrated thought leadership that identify the trends and trend makers of global energy markets. Solutions cover the full energy and natural resources sector, from traditional fossil fuels to emerging clean tech ideas and supply chains, and are available via recurring reports, webinars, robust data sets, and personal engagements with experts. All right. Welcome back to Energy Sense, an S&P global podcast covering all things on the intersection of energy and finance. This is your host, Hill Vaden, and I am here today with Andre Utkin, one of the wind experts here at S&P Global. Andre, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much, Hill, for inviting me. I'm extremely excited to be here with you today. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad uh, for for us both to to digitally be here together, and and I should give introduction as well. So so we have a a new email address, energysense at ihsmarket.com. So so as people are listening today, please, if if you have any thoughts or ideas or or need for more information from either Andre or me, please uh, reach out through that vehicle. But we are here to discuss offshore wind, and this idea comes from uh, from Sarah Week, actually. You, you and I were there together and bumped into each other at one of the, the the presentations, and conversations led to, hey, let's do a podcast on this floating offshore wind topic. So, so here we are. I guess we're exactly a month later, aren't we? Exactly. Yeah, it was roughly a month later and now floating offshore wind is, is getting more and more popularity. It's very attractive. So many players jumped into it. So, yeah, it's a fantastic time to discuss floating offshore wind. Yeah, and you were just back from another conference. Uh, so, so, so now that COVID and everything else is not necessarily in the rear view, but, but we are a- able to move around more freely. And you, you were telling me just a minute ago that there was a conference, I think, in Spain last week that you attended on offshore this wind. Is- Yes, this is true. So I, I just returned back from Wind Europe in Bilbao, which is one of the biggest gatherings of the wind crowd uh, here in Europe. And it's really fantastic. So first of all, 8,000 people, everyone was wearing masks, but still, uh, you know, it's a very good ambiance when you have so many companies gathered together and people who, for most of those people, we uh, we saw each other uh, at Saturday week, but most of the people probably travel for the first time. So you see the excitement people want to exchange and deliver new projects. So the conference was very timely because what's going on with the conflict in Ukraine and now uh, the European Commission um, and everyone is Europe is trying to boost and push for new wind additions and not only onshore wind but offshore Uh, and what surprised me so much is that this conference really turned into floating offshore wind so uh, so many new concepts so many new designs everyone the conventional developers that you know a few years ago they did only bottom fix now everyone presented various floating partnerships, concept designs, projects, mm-hmm. alliances. Yeah, so really, really, really exciting times for floating offshore wind, I think. And talk to us a little bit about why floating offshore wind and, and why now? I mean, I was you, you put out a really good paper on this uh, a couple weeks ago, and, and there's some, some cost challenges, there's some engineering challenges relative to other wind, uh, I guess, wind constructions. So, so what's, how, how should we look at offshore wind, floating offshore wind, but both in the context of offshore wind more generally and in the context of wind even more broadly? 
Right. So this is a fantastic uh, question. And I think, yeah, to to start with, we need to understand why do we need to go floating, right? So the first point of mine would be floating offshore wind and bottom fixed offshore wind, they do not compete each other. So that's really a statement and we do not see these two competing anytime soon or any time in the next 30 years. So whenever you have a possibility to build a proper bottom fixed offshore wind park, so using monopiles or jackets or tripods or any other types of bottom fixed foundations, you probably will be using those. But 80% mm -hmm. of offshore wind potential is in places where either the water is very deep, so or deeper than say 60, 65 uh, meters, where we cannot really or physically use bottom fixed foundations, or the seabed condition is 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 very poor. So maybe it's very rocky, maybe it's very sandy, maybe it's whatever it may be. So you cannot install bottom fixed there. So floating offshore wind is the technology to uncover that potential that I just said, 80%. Now, some countries have both potentials, say UK or Scotland, right? So the few sites can accommodate or US can accommodate bottom fixed. And we can see that UK, for example, it develops uh, its bottom fixed potential moving forward with a floating offshore wind later. But some countries just cannot because they are too deep. Uh, mm -hmm. It's, for example, Japan or Portugal or California in the United States. So those places, South Korea, those places require floating offshore wind solutions. Now, floating offshore wind can also solve a few other problems like nimbism, for example, because if you go to deeper waters, it doesn't really matter how far do you go. So you cannot see it from the from the, from the beach and people kind of are in favor of this solution more mm -hmm. than bottom fix solutions which are just you know 10 kilometers from, shore. from the shore and let me um, define that N N nimbyism is not in my backyard uh, not not back my issue yes and then finally what is also uh, last two points here so capacity factors right so bottom fixed is can be done where water depth allows you to do so. So not necessarily where the winds are the best, but mm -hmm. with floating offshore wind, potentially you can go to any site in the world because water depth is not any longer an issue. So you can tap, you can untap the better wind resources and you can get the capacity factors of 65 or to up to 75 or 70%, which kind of makes floating offshore wind being almost the base load of the uh, electricity generation. And last but not least, I just mentioned NIMBYSM, uh, but we also do have competitive usage, which is extremely important issue everywhere in the world where companies tried to uh, develop offshore wind bottom fixed. It's uh, fishing industry, military, mm -hmm. transport, leisure, all this is extremely important to take into account to potentially you take floating offshore wind, you move it super far away from the coast and you uh, diminish the competitive usage. Okay. And before, I, I think your your point about where where the winds are highest is, is interesting and I, and I want to come back to that. But before we do, in terms of the, the market today, how big is floating offshore wind? Is this 0% of capacity, 50% of capacity? Lo looking specifically at offshore right. wind. 
So if we're looking into floating offshore wind, I think it's important to mention that today it's really in the pre-commercial phase. So we have roughly 150 megawatt of installed capacity globally, mostly in European markets. We have a few demo projects been developed in Asia, but it's really the European story so far. Now, all of them, even though they are in pretty uh, big scale, so for example, last year, the King Cardin project was installed. It's 50 megawatt uh, in total, 9. 5 megawatt turbines were used, so it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty big scale uh, project. Whereas it's still in a pre-commercial phase. Now, countries that develop or they, that has been developing that, it's obviously UK. Uh, we have developments in France, Portugal, Scotland, Norway, uh, and some countries in Asia, so Japan and South Korea. So this is where we are now. But when we are looking into commercialization phase, and I think this is what is interesting because now we are actually moving from face to face mm -hmm. with the first uh, ever commercial auctions uh, being held here in France. So one was launched last year and that's for 250 megawatts of array is going, the results are expected to, to, to come this year. Plus this year we announced another two floating offshore wind tenders here in France also for 250 megawatts each. Uh, plus there was a, a leasing round in Scotland uh, for very big, large-scale projects of more than one gigawatt capacity each. Norway has its development, now Spain has its target, now Italy is moving as well. Uh, California is going to, to have the leasing round. So really, you know, I think the industry has proven itself that we can deliver, we can deliver, and it's physically or technically can be done. And mm -hmm. so now the industry says, give me the scale and I will reduce the cost or reduce the capex and also increase the competitiveness of that technology. And that's what we are doing pretty much everywhere in the world where you have good winds offshore and where, you know, a bottom fixed is challenging option with exception of a few countries like UK who develops both bottom fixed okay. and floating at the same time. Uh, Norway is doing also the same. So Norway has now two uh, dedicated areas uh, and one is specifically for bottom fixed and another one specifically for floating offshore wind. It's, ex it's extremely important to specify what technology will be used because I guess the level of uh, maturity is different and the level of support required to develop those is different. So it has to be in two different buckets, but the sure. markets are pretty much the same. Yeah. But we are, it sounds like maybe less than 10% of the offshore wind market is today floating. Uh, if, if today it's less than 0. <laughs> less than 1%. 0.1, so, yes. The, so, so as of today, offshore, as of today, offshore wind, so we have 55 gigawatt or roughly of 55 gigawatt of install capacity globally and only 150 megawatt of floating offshore okay. wind. So it's really 0 0.12. Okay. But and the outlook costs. is strong. The outlook is strong. And a lot of that is contingent on costs, which I, I think it one of the, the, the charts with, within your presentation, I'm looking at my notes here, but, but we need several decades for off floating offshore wind to get at cost parity with things like solar and onshore wind. Um, yes and no. So uh, it really depends on how we look at things. So if we look on a purely LCOE basis, so levelized cost of electricity basis, when we really try to compare, you know, the cost production of solar and 
or the power generated by a solar asset and a wind asset, then yes, so as of today, floating offshore wind is way, way more expensive than solar PV. But at the same time, once again, floating offshore wind can be really a base load for your hydrogen generation, for example, or it can power uh, oil and gas activities offshore, or it can produce almost a base load generation for you know, electricity consumption, whereas solar does not really mm-hmm. guarantee capacity factors higher than 20%, right? So that's where your floating offshore wind really comes into power and that's the very strong argument for the floating offshore wind. Now, there's some places in the world where we would like to do some onshore wind, but the land availability is also a big issue. Now, floating offshore wind kind of solves this problem because you can go offshore and then, you know, the sky is the limit. You can install no matter how many gigawatts you want. So, you know, I think there's value in this energy way more in this technology, way beyond that's just LCOE. And this is important. So if we're, tu- if we're touching cost today, then uh, that's very true. CAPEX is high. It's definitely higher than bottom fixed offshore. Why is it so? Uh, because we already know, and that's pretty much the same story as we used to have with bottom fixed, say, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. Nobody believed that it's going to reach you know scale. But now we kind of learn how to build a massive amount of monopiles or jackets or all of those pretty quickly. We know how to take a vessel and just go and quickly install those things, right? So I believe that at some point floating offshore wind industry will actually get the same learning curve as bottom fixed offshore wind and will kind of skyrocket and probably all of those learning curves that we show today for floating offshore wind will accelerate much faster mm-hmm. because what we actually need is scale, what we need to, to build some supply chains to, to deliver fast or rapidly the foundations for large scale projects. But this is definitely the future. Now, if we are looking at a levelized cost of electricity, uh, once again, it's not only CAPEX because CAPEX will be reduced by the economies of scale larger turbines because today we're building what eight megawatt unit in a few years from now all the three Simmons, Gamesa, Vestas, and General Electric, they already announced 15 megawatt turbines, 16 megawatt turbines. They will be commercial on the market by 2025. So once we install these larger wind turbines, we are going to dramatically decrease capex per unit of install capacity, right? Um, so scale this- is, is yeah, and scale. I mean, I, I hear you saying that 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 seem that this would seem to put this in the domain of the the large companies. That that if you're going to be playing in offshore wind, and more specifically floating offshore wind, you're looking at these engineering firms or, or traditional oil and gas majors, who really have a competitive advantage because they are using, they they know how to design and deliver giant projects. Is that is that true in terms of who, who's involved today and and the kind of the brainchild of it is it is very true uh, so um you, you know i remember three four years ago that really was an industry of some well let's put it uh techno technology enthusiasts who really you know believe in the floating foundations and they kind of pushed for the wind to float now today you have literally every single large bottom fixed offshore wind player in the floating offshore wind domain. So you have, you know, all the usual suspects, uh, Ibidrola, Orsted, uh, Vattenfall, all of them are there. Plus, of course, RWE, obviously. Mm-hmm. Uh, plus on top of that, uh, we see that all 
European oil and gas majors, they jumped into that straight away after they decided to go offshore wind. That's roughly, I don't know, two, three years ago. Floating offshore wind was a decisive factor as well, because as you correctly said, that's their core business. It comes from there, right? They know how to make oil and gas platforms float. They have these capabilities and plus they have money, they have volume, they have engineering capabilities, uh, they have presence, they have supply chains. So it feels like it's a natural move for them mm-hmm. to move into this floating offshore wind domain. So as of today, you have uh, Total, you have BP, you have ENI, you have uh, you have Equino, of course. Equino was kind of the pioneer in the from the oil and gas so the industry because uh, Equino yeah. is uh, one of the first who started, or the first one actually, who started to develop its uh, its own floating uh, offshore wind foundation called High Wind, uh, high wind Technology. So this mm-hmm. is made of a uh, spa buoy. Uh, now they became uh, agnostic, so they also developed a semi-submersible foundation. So now they say, well, no matter where we are in the world, we can take either this or that and develop projects in the most efficient manner. So it's very interesting how the how the competitive landscape changed uh, yeah. really in the last three years. And I guess it, it can't get any any more competitive than that. Uh, maybe just with the, maybe with the entrance of oil and gas majors from the United States. Yeah, uh, or, or potentially some, some of the government-owned, uh, some of the national oil companies should, should they yes. follow the same kind of engineering path. And, and I want to come back to the Equinor uh, example, but before I do, you, you mentioned earlier about offshore wind or floating offshore wind having good opportunity where where the wind is, uh, which I guess is you know intuitive, but but you, you have a great map in the, the the paper that you published um, that shows the, the, the best places, if one were to just put wind, um, it, you know, regardless of NIMBY concerns or, or things like that. And one of the things that, that it w- was interesting to me is the Gulf of Mexico, which is the kind of the hotbed of the U.S. Um, energy exploration or oil and gas exploration, doesn't have very good wind. And so if floating offshore wind is going to be if the wind, which is a map, made it look like that there was better wind in the U.S. on the North Atlantic and the Pacific, where Massachusetts and California are less receptive to big energy projects. The, yeah. So, so where, in terms of geographies, where are we seeing outside of the North Sea and Scotland and, and area that, that you've mentioned? Where are we seeing some of the uptake, whether government support or just everything kind of lining up for these floating offshore wind concepts? Right. Yeah. So that's a fantastic question because I, I like how you framed it up at the end that, yeah, there's also when somebody asks me, what does it take to make a good floating offshore wind market? Right. So very intuitive. The first one is, well, there has to be wind at first place. Right. So there's, there's no wind and there are a lot of places in the world. And we've just spoke to a market who really keen or who really wants to develop floating offshore wind, but they unfortunately do not have wind. So it's just at first place, you cannot do in places where there's no wind. Right, right around uh, banks, that's where the money is. Exactly. <laughs> well, but your LCUE was your your capacity factor would be just so low and then your LCUE would be too, super high. Now, the second one is obviously some good support schemes, right? So policy in place where you have auctions in place where you know how to compete, who is going to compete and what 
they are competing for. So proper legislation, proper permitting process, very clear. Everyone understands what paper after which paper you should get in order to develop and push the project. So if we're returning back to the United States, this is very true that um, Gulf of Mexico does not have as good winds as, for example, California or uh, Massachusetts. But I wouldn't say that those winds are dramatically bad, so we cannot really do any floating offshore wind uh, development there. So In let's the put it that way. Yeah. So. It is very possible, and I do believe that we will see some floating offshore wind developments in the Gulf of Mexico. So if we are if we are looking at that map, we kind of benchmark the entire world in between two megawatt per second winds and fourteen megawatt per second winds. Now, fourteen obviously is something that we have in a very good market. So it can be UK, Scotland, Norway, some Asia Pacific markets like Japan has very good winds. Taiwan has good winds. Mainland China also, not everywhere, but in the middle coast, they have very good winds. Australia have fantastic winds. Philippines have good winds. Uh, Morocco, if we're talking about Northern Africa, um, and that's also one of the market, one of the potential market. There's no developments now, but there will be. Brazil have very good winds. Now, if we're looking at Latin America, Chile and Argentina have also fantastic winds. Now, when we're looking at Chile and Argentina, they got a lot of land availability for onshore wind, where wind is as strong as offshore. So probably you don't okay. go immediately offshore just because you have you have to deploy onshore, which is kind of cheaper because it's onshore. Um, but yeah, so policy and regulation and permitting is is extremely important for any given market or any given country or any given spot in that or within that country in order to drive the, the floating offshore wind industry. And especially at the beginning, especially now when the, when the industry is in the pre-commercial phase mm -hmm. and you need to kick it off. And then for this, you need to give a clear message to the investors, to the companies, to come and invest, to build a supply chain, to develop into floating offshore wind, but they need to understand the rules of the game, right? So that's what we see today, in, as, as you mentioned, in Northern Sea. That's what we started to see in the US because the signals are very clear uh, in the US. So um, all the Pacific Ocean, all the Pacific Coast will be uh, floating offshore wind now, even in New York. So as of now, now uh, we know that there was the solicitation, which was very successful, up to 5.6 gigawatt of bottom fixed uh, a month ago. Uh, but the plans of the government, as, as far as I know, is to, to move floating at some point. How about, you mentioned Japan. So, so I mean, the, the other thing that, like, to, to Japan would seem really interesting to, to me because Japan is an importer of energy and is so reliant on others for energy. And, and we started off the conversation about your uh, conference in Europe where all of a sudden offshore wind, given the yeah. gas reliance on Russia, uh, offshore wind and, and or any sort of energy optionality is an important part of it, any conversation. Japan is fully reliant or almost fully reliant on others for its energy. And if they've got the wind, are, are we seeing big policy support and, and or projects move in there faster than other areas? Absolutely, um, it, it does happen. I wouldn't. I wouldn't probably try to compare the the pace of the development mm -hmm. by different markets because, you know, Northern Sea has a tremendous supply chain already built for bottom fixed. It has its port. It has its vessels. Uh, everything. So we can't really compare. You know, Japan and 
northern sea and the pace of the development of floating offshore wind and those. So I guess that in Europe, it, it still will be slightly more accelerated. But in Japan, yes, we do have, we do see, so there's a lot of projects moving on. There's a lot of companies moving, European especially, European oil and gas, European uh, power utilities, all of them or most of them, they entered already the market. They are trying to create islands where the Japanese uh, mm -hmm. local companies, right, who know how to enter the market, who know uh, some specificities, who know how to develop large-scale projects in Japan. Uh, there are a few projects under construction now, so those are bottom-fixed. Uh, there are tenders in place. Uh, the one uh, one tender um, actually happened last year. It's relatively small, as if, if I'm not mistaken, I think it's 16.8 megawatt only, but the tenders are uh, scheduled. Uh, there is a proper understanding of how to develop, when to develop, and now the companies are prepared for scale. So Japan is definitely seeing, if we're looking at Asia Pacific, Japan and South Korea, these two countries are definitely seen by the international community as, well, international community of, of offshore wind players mm -hmm. as the first markets to, to target and to build. Plus, uh, both Japan and South Korea have uh, have set the targets uh, okay. for offshore wind, and yeah, they are definitely looking into into that development. So we are going to see first large scale projects being built there in this decade for sure. Okay, so then, then the other one, and this has come up a couple of times during our conversation, but but Equinor specifically, and then the North Sea specifically, and there's. What one of the projects that caught my eye in, in your paper was on the high wind tampon, tampon. which Equinor is running and is interesting one because of the, the total potential size relative to some of the other projects and two that it's being designed to meet the needs of oil and gas platforms in a legacy oil and gas hotbed of North Sea which we've seen some of that on a smaller scale, I suppose, in the Permian Basin in the U.S., where, where there was immediate application of solar technologies in order to meet demands of oil and gas customers. Can, can you talk a little bit more about the, the Equinor project and, and how we should view that relative to, to other opportunities? Yeah, absolutely. So as you correctly said, um, that's going to be the largest project floating offshore wind project ever built. So as for now, we kind of set the record last year with Kincardine project 50 megawatt in Scotland. That's mm -hmm. just purely for power. Now this one will be 88 megawatt and I believe it's moving into its construction phase. So pretty soon it's going to be built. Now um, Equinor is targeting to power its own, I believe five oil and gas platforms with this, I guess 10 floating offshore wind turbines. Um, I think what is interesting here is really the application, right? Oh, so sorry, I forgot to mention that the project is in Norway. Uh, okay. So they're building in their home country. Uh, so I think what is interesting and what we didn't really touch the basis before, but some of the applications of floating offshore wind in general, right? So there are a few. So the first one is you build your floating offshore wind park to produce electricity and electricity will be the final good. Now, we can also produce green hydrogen based on floating offshore wind. And it is floating offshore wind and offshore wind in general is seen as one of the best 
technologies for the green hydrogen production. But the last but not least, and it's very important, right? It's to it's to power oil and gas activities offshore. Uh, now, potentially for oil and gas companies, it can be extremely interesting because they can decarbonize their own activities, right? They can sort of reduce emissions because as we all know, each and every platform, it normally has the um, gas turbine on the platform. So you produce oil and the byproduct is gas, so you burn gas and that's how you run your activities. So potentially you can run those being connected to a floating offshore wind park. Um, you can also be connected to two different sources. So you can connect yourself to the shore via a cable, for example, to the onshore wind park, uh, to the solar wind park, and at the same time being connected to floating offshore wind park. So it kind of ticks all the boxes and yeah, mm -hmm. you can decarbonize your, your activities. So uh, I think I have no doubts that this project will succeed in terms of, you know, um, installation and how it's going to produce electricity. But I guess the whole world is really looking forward to see, you know, how much of the consumption of those platforms can so a project like like this, like a large scale project can cover. But also moving forward, there's already a set up um, auction in Scotland for floating offshore wind just dedicated to power oil and gas activities offshore. So this is this is probably definitely our future. Um, so and yeah, that's why. Establishes a real proof of concept for uh, application outside of oil and gas when you get these motivated companies um, it, it helps to really vet the technology and helps maybe drive that scale and cost uh, that, that you were talking at, at the beginning. Absolutely. Well, just so I, I, I want to be, be sensitive of, of your time uh, and, and our listeners today. So um, may, maybe as a final question, you know, as we're looking at the floating offshore wind market uh, to today, it's the, the, the first or second week in uh, April. What's the one or two things that we should be watching for over the next six to 12 months? If, is, is there one thing that you're saying, all right, if this happens or if this doesn't happen, um, it's going to be meaningful? I think uh, I think that's going to happen anyway, because um, and I tell you why, because there's already this ongoing first commercial project uh, in France uh, auction, sorry, which was which was set up last year. Right. And we're just waiting for the results this year. But we know all the companies that participate, and that's all the usual suspects. Like mm -hmm. everyone is there. So you know that they already bid it. You know that the prices are there, and you know that they're keen to build that. So I think uh, one of the things would be extremely interesting to see how low do they bid. So just to really okay. get the sense of the real LCU in the real, uh, re the real deal, let's put it that way. And then, of course, uh, to see how quickly other markets will uh will put in place um auctions uh for example in the united states or um in south korea or in uh um in new markets uh, being australia or philippines or vietnam and how how quick uh, are they going to move but i think this first commercial scale projects they will really set up the scene and you know put the trajectory moving forward all right so so all eyes on europe uh for, for uh one of many reasons right now Yes, for now, yes. But that makes sense because the bottom fixed offshore wind industry is here and obviously floating offshore wind is kind of a little brother of that. So it's a continuation, right? But there are still some differences, for example, in installation. If we're looking how both are installed, uh, bottom fixed offshore wind is installed with wind turbine installation vessels, Ben Jacob. Um, mm -hmm. 
but floating offshore wind does not require those very large installation vessels. So you construct all your platforms onshore, you put it all on offshore, and you just need a small little boat to tow it into the construction site, and it just takes you one day. So, um, you know, it can also solve some of the technical issues that we can see in bottom fixed um, offshore wind industry. But the, right. the mover will be Europe, yes. All right. Well, th this sounds like an interesting space to watch, and, and hopefully we can revisit our conversation as, as things happen. So, Andre, thanks so much for, uh, for joining me today, and, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you very much, Hill. Have a fantastic day. Thank you, you too. To read additional insights from our team of experts, visit our blog at www.ihsmarket.com slash energy blog. You can also find our experts on social media by searching for IHS Market Energy on either Twitter or LinkedIn. Have a topic idea or want to send us feedback? Email our podcast team at energysense at ihsmarket.com. This podcast contains information and insights copyrighted by IHS Market. To learn more about IHS Market Energy solutions, visit ihsmarket.com slash energy. That's ihsmarkit.com forward slash energy.